This is an ABC podcast. Well, it's the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, and the sun has finally gone down, which means that the devout around the country are gathering with friends and family to break their daily fast. I'm Meredith Lake, and on Soul Search today, we're visiting some Australian Muslims at home to find out about their experience of Ramadan, especially the practices, the meanings, and the spiritual dimensions of fasting, the fourth pillar of Islam. You know, when you move into a community where literally every family in your street is Muslim, it's incredible how quickly you transform. You know, because my parents raised us in a primarily white working class community, and instinctively said, Muhammad, your name is Michael. And then the minute we got to Lakemba, I remember all the kids were saying to me, why is your name Michael? How do you say your name in Arabic? I say, Muhammad. And they said, that's Muhammad. And so not even 24 hours after I'd come to Lakemba, I remember just immediately identifying with the name Muhammad and that became my name. Michael Muhammad Ahmed, a novelist who's just won a major literary award on how his identity as a Muslim has been reshaped at different stages of his life. Soul Search producer Mariam Shahab brings us more of Muhammad's story a little later in the program. First, though, come with me to Western Sydney, where I've been invited to an iftar. My name is Mishgan Badrad, and I'm an educational leader at uh, Amity College. My parents migrated. They chose Australia as their home, and we grew up in Australia, and I uh, became a teacher. I have finished my... PhD in educational leadership and uh, I met my husband here in Australia. We have one son, 27, and that's me. <laughs> what Mujgan didn't say is that she's also an exceptional cook. You're at the MasterChef's house, I can guarantee you that. <laughs> she's, she's phenomenal. Really and well. she and her husband, Namuk, have opened their home to a group of strangers, including me, so that we can join them as they break their fast. I'm here with a family, Nick and Christine and their two kids, and Burak from Affinity, the foundation that organises these kinds of dinners to foster interfaith and intercultural relationships. And wow, it's a good thing I arrived hungry. It's an incredible table. I know, yeah. Please make yourself comfortable wherever you feel comfortable. One of Mujgan's colleagues from the school, Suba, is here as well. And Suba's husband, Ahmed, and their three-year-old son. Ahmed works for ISRA, the Islamic Sciences and Research Academy connected with Charles Sturt University. And so, altogether, it's quite a party. My suggestion, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> because you need to be strategic. <laughs> it's good advice, because the table is laden, with some dishes that I find familiar, as well as some Turkish specialties. And it makes me wonder what it's like to prepare such a feast, especially because in the daytime, from sunrise to sunset, Mujgan and Namuk are fasting. I hope the salt and everything is okay. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. Though. Dinners usually for Ramadan, if it's your own family, it doesn't have to be so big. But when visitors come, yes, I need to start preparing from the day before. So the sweets and the cold dishes are usually done the night before. And then the other dishes, the hot dishes, salads have to be done on the day. Yesterday I came home about 8 o'clock and I started straight away. She has slept. I have slept. I have slept a couple of hours, yes. <laughs> so you were cooking all day while you were fasting. Yes. What's that experience like? Um, the only downfall is that you can't taste the food because uh, you're cooking for others. You get a bit hesitant about whether the salt is enough or, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But because measurements, uh, you know your pots and pans usually, so that helps. If I was in a different kitchen, it might be a, a headache, but hopefully all the dishes were all right and the taste was okay. <laughs> it does make you feel a bit tired because you run out of energy, but um, it's okay. Ramadan uh, is a time when you need to um, make sure that you uh, reserve yourself from luxuries of life so when you can't taste you know that it's ramadan so <laughs> to cater all these meals do you have to prepare 
for Ramadan by shopping ahead of time. We know that Ramadan comes when there's uh, Woolworths starts selling boxes of dates. <laughs> Even Woolworths are, are on the you know the the spirit of Ramadan. We stock up on a lot of things uh, like uh, lentils. Then we have our sweets. We have to make sure that we have the ingredients to make the sweets. Uh, baklava, for instance, or kadayif, for instance. You need to make sure that you have the right. Uh, ingredients, um, even uh, stock up on rice because there's a lot of rice being used in some of the dishes. So yes, uh, you do stock up. Uh, it depends on the season as well too. If it was summer, we'd have different type of food, but if it's winter, we have the lentils, the, the beans, those sort of dishes. I just found a recent recipe for the custard. We're sitting in the lounge room now, sharing dessert and feeling full. I hope you like it. The children are playing with their toys and you might hear them in the background. Reflecting on the day and on the meal we've enjoyed, I want to hear more about the experience of Ramadan. So I asked Suba, Ahmet and Burak how they prepare themselves spiritually for the holy month and about its importance in their religious lives. You're asking tough questions now. Yeah, it's getting more tough. I may just start with the personal level. Um, seeing the dates at the shops makes you realise that it's coming up. But um, I try to have um, personal targets for each Ramadan. Uh, it's the month of spirituality, it's a month of community, it's a month of obviously um, fasting where we aim to elevate our um, spirituality here. Um, with my prayers I try to be careful, Quran reading I try to read a bit more, it's recommended to finish it all but obviously it depends on your um, busy schedule. Also I try to attend um, if sardiners and um, host people to feel it. Um, it it's, looks like it's not spiritual, but you, you feel compassion in you. It helps your spirituality to be more motivated to do uh, more prayers and be connected with God. I guess Ramadan is really, really big. So it's, there's really two other months leading up to Ramadan, and they're kind of considered holy as well. So that kind of allows you to get to prepare for the marathon that's coming. So those two months are very spiritual. There are various uh, rewards hidden within those two months as well. So it's as if God is telling you there's a marathon that's coming up. Start training now. And th those two months really help you with that. And there is a very strong emphasis in the sayings of Muhammad in the, in the Quran about the month of Ramadan, the rewards that are within the month of Ramadan. Uh, like, for example, there is a night in which uh, is equal to 83 years of a human's life in terms of rewards. So if one spends that night uh, in, in worship, uh, in trying to connect with God, it's as if that person have tried for 83 years. So concepts like this really uh, kind of allows us to look forward to Ramadan and start preparing for Ramadan. Uh, and uh, the, the fact that we know God is really looking for an excuse to f forgive our sins, to allow us to get closer to Him. Uh, and there is a very, very strong vibe, like for example, the, the imams in the mosques, they start talking about the month of Ramadan, uh, let's say a week or two weeks beforehand. And, uh, and those kind of things start, uh, start allowing you to, to tune in. And as my wife said, uh, Tuba, it's really about you setting your goals for the month, what you want to do, what you want to achieve. Uh, with that, I guess there's a bit of experience too that allows you to as also uh, to, to feel the, uh, the spirituality of the month and, and, and what is within that month. So, yeah. Can I ask what goals you set for yourselves this year? So I did a workshop this morning, to be honest, with year seven to year, year nine boys. And, uh, and we made a list of goals that they have for the month of Ramadan. And I just wanted to see what, what they have really in mind. I, was, I realized that they, were, they had very good goals in mind. Some of them were being more patient towards annoying friends. Uh, that was a goal which I really liked. Uh, one said, I'm going to finish the Quran, uh, let's say, which is about 600 pages. One, one said, uh, I'm going to try to empathize with poor people a bit more as for myself 
We have the night prayers, which goes about an hour to two hours every night. You go to the mosque uh, to, to pray. So I've kind of set myself a goal to attend that every night. Another thing is to wake up at night time. We have sahur, it's the pre-dawn meal, and we, we, we try to have that. I thought it's good while we wake up, we also pray because it's a strong tradition within the life of Muhammad, peace be upon him, to pray at night time. So what I try to do is I've set myself a goal every night to before or after I have the pre-dawn meal, I try to I try to pray to God and connect with God. Uh, those two are really the, the strong ones that I have. Uh, but apart from that, I know people like they, for example, they try to abstain from certain other things as well. Uh, it really changes from person to person. Uh, I've been struggling with my sleep routine. And um, I've been encouraging Ahmed to help me with uh, my sleep hours to be reduced because with the family and the work, obviously it gets quite busy. I set the goal at the beginning in my mind that um, even though I struggle with the physical prayers, I would encourage myself to pray every night. And so far, um, we've achieved. <laughs> I'm aiming to finish it until the end of the month. Um, and then set the same routine in my life um, so that it becomes the um, discipline of my life. Um, as a mother, you don't have the luxury of um, having me time all the time. Um, if, if, you, if you do not make it part of your nature, you struggle throughout your life. And um, Ramadan is a good time to set this goal, so that's my um, aim. Um, Ramadan is a month of spirituality. Um, and I think it is a time of self-reflection um, and self-awareness as well. So it is a time to um, you know, reflect on uh, ourselves and try to, I guess, um, gain new habits within the month because I guess 29 to 30 days is a good time frame to adopt new habits uh, and also um, get rid of bad ones as well. Um, you know, that might even be things like spending too much time on social media or, or all sorts of things. Uh, I personally, um, you know, made uh, a decision to, um, I guess, we sometimes lose ourselves at, uh, during the iftar meal as well, because it's meant to be um, a month of spirituality, you, you, you are encouraged to spend your night in worship, but when you do eat too much during iftar, you sort of um, feel sleepy afterwards. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I try to uh, be careful with what I eat and um, I've decided to participate in the Tarawih prayers every night. And also, I guess uh, it does sort of test your patience when you are hungry and, you, you, you know, you might get frustrated a lot easier during the day. Um, so it is a time for uh, developing your self-discipline as well and not, you know, um, losing yourself with all those emotions. Yeah, you sort of do train your conscience. Um, so it is a good, I guess, uh, a month for training, you know, yourself as well. On RN, this is Soul Search with me, Meredith Lake. Today, we're enjoying the hospitality of the Barabah family at their home in Sydney's West. Iftar is the delicious dinner that marks the end of the daily fast. And whether you're listening in on air, online, or as a podcast, we're about to hear another guest, Ahmed, recite from the Quran to explain fasting and other spiritual practices during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا يا أيها الذين آمنوا كتب عليكم الصيام كما كتب على الذين من قبلكم لعلكم تتقون which kind of the verse translates to Oh you who believe uh, Fasting is prescribed upon you As it was prescribed upon those before you So and uh, when I was at university We used to uh, do this uh, event called Fastathon And we would What we'd do is we'd ask people to fast with us in different ways, in their own ways, sometimes from, let's say, social media or sometimes from coffee, whatever it is, or sometimes from food and water like us. What I, what I realized was it was really a common factor that brought people together as well. Not just Muslims, but also people from different backgrounds and, and traditions as well. How does Ramadan focus your attention on forgiveness? Um, forgiveness is very important in Ramadan, especially um, to the, towards your family, 
friends, um, your community, your, your relatives, anyone that you um, have disagreements with, you're supposed to, in the month of Ramadan, and especially in Eid time, make up with those people. I think forgiveness is a major theme of Ramadan. Um, our Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, does say that um, whoever, uh, this is, you know, uh, not an exact translation, but um, of a translation of meaning, I guess, uh, whoever observes the fast during Ramadan uh, and expects uh, the reward um, from Allah uh, fully, like he fasts sincerely, all his past sins will be forgiven. Um, so it is, uh, I guess, a month where Muslims would, um, you know, uh, you know, try to focus on that and try to um, have all their past sins forgiven and make the most of that opportunity as well. Yeah. And I guess just the fact that people are encouraged to share their uh, their food with others, like uh, there's a there's a saying which which goes, uh, the one who gives iftar or the the dinner to the fasting person gets the same reward of the person who's fasting without that person's fast the reward diminishing. So there's a very strong emphasis on uh, on social relations and, and, and people interacting and sharing. And that really allows the, the boundaries to be, to, to be broken and that forgiveness, that mercy to come forth as well. So even, even amongst the people too, it becomes a bit of a uh, tradition to, to forgive each other and to have mercy towards one another. I guess another dimension of Ramadan is uh, it is a month of generosity because God becomes very generous in this month, so do Muslims as well. And uh, people really give a lot, like there's usually fundraisers in this month and uh, people donate a lot of money. And one thing that you really come to understand is when, uh, when you have access to food and water but you don't eat and drink, you are self-disciplining yourself, but at the same time, you understand what it feels to be poor, what it feels not to have access to these things. So you come to empathize with, with poor people, and that allows you to become even more generous, to uh, look after the people who are underprivileged in the society. Uh, you really start uh, giving in, in this month. Ahmed's point about generosity really resonated for me. Not limited to the poor, Mujgan and Namuk's generosity extended to strangers, like me, and to the other guests, Nick and Christine. It is an opportunity for us to share this month with others as well. Um, we have about 40 home iftar dinners, um, like the one we are at now, uh, where our host families open up their homes and... Um, uh, it, I guess, allows for a more sincere uh, discussion in, in a warm and cosy environment uh, where you don't always get at a major event. And the people that we do invite to these iftars are uh, generally non-Muslims, you know, uh, who are interested in coming and, uh, and attending. And it is something we encourage. And it's, I guess, we just share... Uh, what we know and we, we share you know information about each other and we I guess we just learn from each other uh, it's not just a one-sided experience you know it's an experience for all yeah why did you decide to come to uh, an affinity dinner tonight um, so I think probably I felt really ignorant about Islam particularly but also Ramadan and so you might have friends and they might say oh you know it's a bit hard or this or what have you but actually having a conversation like this you don't really get into or you don't want to sound stupid or offensive so you don't go into that space and so then having this invitation I was like oh okay so it's almost a safe space to understand it better. Tonight I felt like almost like jealousy at like obviously the fasting would be not the uh, most enjoyable experience but like the the community that you have in this experience and like the um, almost drive to be generous. I don't know, it just it, it feels very warm that you don't, I don't feel we really had something like this, like a whole month of inviting people into our space with Catholicism. What happens now? What does the rest of the evening look like? It's not all, it's not all cleaning, is it? I hope it isn't. Um, we can help. Um, no, no. Um, some of the evening is uh, cleaning, but then after the cleaning, I need to do my prayers before going to bed and um, doing the Teravi prayer, not in a, a communal way, but at home tonight. Uh, and then um, after my prayers, I would probably try and read a bit of Quran as well too, because I didn't have time to read 
during the day today. So that would be my evening. And then I would relax a little bit and have a conversation with my husband who helped me out a lot today. Thank you very much. <laughs> when you attach meaning to what you do, I guess it, it doesn't become a burden on you. I gave a talk about Ramadan uh, before the month started at Mary College to pretty much about 400 boys and then 400 girls. My, my key message was, it's how you perceive things. Do you, see, do you see it as a burden or an opportunity? And really fasting and Ramadan becomes like that. When you see it as a burden, I have to fast 12 hours a day, it's going to be really hard, I'm not going to eat and drink. You need to really apply yourself psychologically and prepare yourself psychologically as well. When you do that, it, you, you have a paradigm shift. And really, you start enjoying what you do. Like fasting, to me, is, is at the moment somewhat enjoyable because I see it as a practice, as a worship, as a way to connect to God. Uh, and uh, same thing, like when you're preparing for visitors, guests, even when you're cleaning, it could be 11 p.m. at night, you're vacuuming at 12 a.m. at night. But because there's a meaning attached to the practice that you do, it doesn't become a burden anymore. So it's, it really helps you psychologically deal with these things. Uh, and it gives you an enormous mental strength. So I'm sure as uh, Mujgan Oja was preparing the, the, the food today, I'm not sure if you felt it, but really it's more like, okay, I'm going to feed you know, people, I'm going to have rewards for this. So it becomes a bit of a good experience at the end. Yeah. It's very rewarding actually. Yeah. Because you know that there's a, there's a purpose behind it and you want to um, host people is an important uh, aspect of Ramadan as well. Hosting and opening your doors to uh, people that you haven't met is an e enormous experience for all of us. Especially my husband and I, you know, we like to have people over from Affinity, thanks to Affinity. And um, any chance to talk about and uh, share our uh, religion with others is, is a plus for us. Mujgan Berber, by day an educational leader at Amity College in Western Sydney, and by night a brilliant host who welcomed me to her home for iftar. And to debrief afterwards, who better to speak with than SoulSearch producer Mariam Shahab? Well, hi, Mariam. Hey, Meredith. Happy Ramadan. Thank you. Although there's a particular greeting, isn't there? Yes, Ramadan Mubarak. And what does that mean? Well, Mubarak means blessing. So Ramadan Mubarak means a blessed Ramadan. Can you tell me more about why this is a period of, of blessedness? So this is the month in which the Quran was uh, revealed to the Prophet Muhammad and fasting during Ramadan is also one of the key pillars of Islam. So you have the Shahada or Declaration of Faith, prayers every day, giving to charity or zakat, fasting during the month of Ramadan and going on the pilgrimage to Mecca for Hajj. So yeah, Ramadan is one of those key pillars and you find that a lot of Muslims, you know, they might not pray, they might drink alcohol, they might not eat halal, but you find during Ramadan, a lot of people really do fast and they give it a go. Right. So it's a, it's a period of really heightened yes. spirituality for many Muslims. Yes, that's right. It's not just about giving up the food and the water. It's about getting closer to God. I've just been to my first iftar. And how about this? As I was leaving... Mujgan, my host, gave me a box of chocolates, um, which she said was payment for the rental of my tea. Oh, <laughs> and apparently that's a Turkish custom that you repay your guests for coming around and helping you it's to very eat, generous. Yeah, to eat your own food. Yeah. So uh, that was a really wonderful experience for me. But I suppose iftar is a pretty routine part of your life at the moment, Mariam. Yes. So um, when the sun sets, I'm breaking fast on some dates, soup. Usually salad as well, traditional Lebanese food, and um, my favourite, a cup of tea at the end of the day, uh, which is what I'm craving the most, actually, during this month. And how is this something that's important to you, spiritually speaking? I think, for me, when you're depleting yourself of food and water, you're kind of filling up your soul instead. Hmm. So um, it really grounds you and it humbles you to realise what is important in life and how blessed you are in having readily available food and water at your fingertips, really. So for me, yeah, it's important because it allows me to get closer to my faith. And breaking your fast each day, you mentioned really craving a cup of tea. Yeah. But is that something you do mainly with your family or your friends? Usually on weekends, it's with my wider family. 
on the weekdays, it's just with my immediate family at home. But also, you know, you do break fast with friends. A lot of people go out to restaurants and restaurants have iftar banquets that they have. And there's also community events as well. So in the suburb of Lakemba, which is in southwest Sydney, um, they have these Ramadan markets where all the restaurants kind of have a food truck um, or a food store at at the outside of their shops. And um, it's a really lovely atmosphere where people come and eat, you know, a potato on a stick or some corn in a cup or, you know, a a kebab if they're after something larger. It's about, you know, meeting up with your friends and family and um, being in the presence of other people. And Mariam, am I right to think that one of your friends, a novelist, has just won a New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. Yes, Dr Michael Mohammed Ahmed. He won um, the Multicultural New South Wales Award for his book, The Lebs. It's about a young uh, Lebanese-Australian man who's kind of navigating the world post 9-11. And uh, yeah, it was a great win. And how did you first meet Mohammed? I met Mohammed when I was about 20 years old. I was working at a community organisation and we were sub-editing like journals, poetry, other pieces of writing. And then um, we did that, the same thing when he founded his organisation called Sweatshop. But we were also doing writing workshops at schools. So we would go in and talk to the kids about what they were seeing in the media, getting them to write stories. And we were trying to, you know, tell them to encourage them that their story was worth telling and getting them to to write their own lives to represent their own, their own selves instead of having other people do that for them. And that's something uh, Michael Muhammad yes. himself has been doing with this new novel, The Lebs, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So Muhammad would say it's not about positive stories about the community, it's about accurate stories from the community. And um, I guess that's what he was doing with The Lebs. And yeah, I met up with him recently to chat about the book and about his Ramadan experience. So... I joined him post-Iftar and I asked him what the win meant for him. You know, if you spoke to most Arab-Australian and Muslim-Australian writers in, in this country, we collectively agree that there's a desire through our work to offer complex, positive and sophisticated portrayals of who we are in an attempt to counteract the many negative stereotypes that are often propagated about us in mainstream Australian media and politics. And I think that, you know, winning these kinds of awards, it it gives us a a sense of hope that people are listening and that people are reading our work, they're engaging with our work, and that they're taking steps towards thinking in a more intellectual way about what it means to be an Arab-Australian Muslim in the year 2019. Well, it was certainly very well deserved and a great read. The main character, though, in the Lebs, Bani Adam, he is a Lebanese-Australian. He is an Alawite Muslim, a young man growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney. Mohammed, you're Lebanese-Australian and you were raised Alawite Muslim. Not many people would know what Alawite means or what they believe. So could you explain that? Yeah. So firstly, it's important to differentiate me from the character Bani Adam. Benny Adam is an autobiographical version of myself, but he's firstly myself at a young age, and he's also a fictional version of myself. So I, I don't believe what Benny believes, and I don't think what Benny thinks. I mean, the character of Benny is very similar to what I was like when I was growing up, and you know, as a young Arab Australian Muslim Alawite who was studying at Punchbowl Boys High School, which was a public school but predominantly Muslim Australian uh, students. And I, I tried to take great pride in my Alawism as a young boy. And I try to instill that in the, in the character of Benny, that he's proud of his Alawism as a minority in a Muslim Sunni dominated space. But for me now, which is quite different to Benny, is that I genuinely don't identify with any of the sects in Islam. I, I don't like to say that I'm Alawi, Sunni or Shia. I stand very firmly, and this is a decision I made about 10 years ago, to say that I'm a Muslim. I believe in the message of the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I'm really happy to look at all the schools of thought that were introduced to the religion of Islam after Muhammad died. And that as an intellectual, critically conscious being, I am free to read the Quran and interpret it in a way that makes sense to me and to live by it based on what makes sense to me. Um, now, in terms of what is Alawi, 
it's really in the name. The, the name Alawi is named after the Imam Ali. And so we are a branch of Shiism. And what we believe in is the, primarily the teachings of the Imam Ali, who was the son-in-law and cousin of the Prophet Muhammad. He was also, for Sunnis, the fourth caliph, and for Shia and Alawi, the first imam of the 12 imams. So, Muhammad, growing up, you lived with most of your dad's family in inner-city Sydney, in a suburb that was predominantly white called Alexandria. What did you know about Islam or being Muslim as a young child? The suburb I grew up in, you know, it was in the 80s and early 90s. And it was still a working class community, but also there was the, the, the kind of presence of the, the waves of migration that had been taking place over the last 100 years in Australia. And I, I do think that growing up in a community that's primarily white disconnects you from your culture and your, your history. And it disconnects you from your, your religion or the religion of your ancestors. And so we knew we were Muslim growing up. When I say growing up, I mean up until I was 10, up until we, we moved from the suburb of Alexandria. We knew we were Muslim. We knew how to speak a little bit of Arabic. We knew not to eat pig meat. And that was a big thing for our parents to instill in us because they didn't want us to accidentally eat pig meat in school. And so they had to warn us, you know, make sure that you check what's in the food. Don't eat at the sausage sizzle, those kinds of things. But other than that, we didn't have any really serious engagement with Islam until we moved to the suburb of Lakemba. And what was different about Lakemba? You know, Lakemba had such a reputation of being so heavily Arab and Muslim and specifically Lebanese at the time that we nicknamed it Lebkemba. And, you know, when you move into a community where literally every family in your street is Muslim, you know, Sunni, Shia, Alawi didn't make a difference. It's incredible how quickly you transform, you know, because my parents raised us in a primarily white working class community and instinctively said, Muhammad, your name is Michael. And then the minute we got to Lakemba, I remember all the kids were saying to me, why is your name Michael? How do you say your name in Arabic? I say, Muhammad. And they said, that's Muhammad. And so not even 24 hours after I'd come to Lakemba, I remember just immediately identifying with the name Muhammad and that became my name. And I remember within the first week of living in Lakemba, uh, starting to say, Assalamu Alaikum, starting to greet people in the street and greet my mum and dad with the, with the ancient Muslim way of saying hello to someone. And... Uh, I can honestly say that that year that we moved to Lakemba was also the year that we began to fast. In that same year, me and all my siblings were ready to participate in the holy month of Ramadan, which meant that we were willing to fast from sunrise to sunset for 30 days. Just to try to put this into perspective, um, that was back when Ramadan was in the middle of summer. I remember that. Yeah, Yeah, we were very young. And so... We break our fast at 8 p.m. And so you get to a point where you're just beyond hunger. You're just so hungry that you, you go, your body goes into a totally different state. And it's also very hot, you know, 30 days of, of no food or water in the hottest period of the year. It almost sounds horrifying. And I think a lot of non-Muslim listeners are like, that sounds intense for a child. But what you need to understand is that I think it's harder actually not to fast when you're living in a Muslim community because you're surrounded by other Muslims who are all fasting. So there's a bit of pressure. Well, I don't remember pressure. Like, I don't remember being bullied into it. I just was embarrassed to eat around my Muslim brothers and sisters. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to fast today. And then I go to school and I'm like, I'm going to buy a Coke. And I just look at all my Muslim brothers and sisters, these, you know, 10-year-olds um, with, uh, you know, eight of them are named Muhammad like me. And they're not eating. And, and when you're in that community, you're not feeling bullied or intimidated to do it. You just don't want to betray them or let them down. You want to participate, you know. It's a very encouraging to be in that space. And so I think it makes perfect sense that for me, my Islam really didn't kick off until I was a, living in a community where there were other Muslims. Because you feel that sense of solidarity, which helps you get through the day. You mentioned solidarity was there any friction um, over the fact that you were an Alawite family moving into a predominantly Sunni suburb? Um, so firstly, what I would like to say is that 
one of the ways that Alawiyya, because there's such a small minority who are historically persecuted in the Arab world, one of the ways that my family and other Alawites protect themselves is through anonymity, through not being publicly outspoken about the fact that they're Alawi. So in that way, because my family actively taught us not to talk about being Alawi, we, were, we often felt quite safe. Now, there were some instances where our Alawiism revealed itself. But, but you have to understand, there's some myths about Alawis. One of the strongest myths is that we endorse alcohol, that we think it's not haram. That, that's not true. There's just, unfortunately, a lot of Alawites in Australia today who drink. Um, and they don't do it saying, I drink because it's okay. They, they do it as young people who actively don't want to practice what the Quran is telling them. And so when we first moved to Lakemba, and because we'd come out of this very working class, non-Muslim community, it was not uncommon for our relatives who lived in Lakemba, because our whole generation moved to Lakemba. It was not uncommon for them to drink and to put beer bottles at the front of their houses, you know, after Christmas and, and things like this. And so I remember at school, some of the Muslim kids would say to me, you aren't Muslim. And I say, why are you saying this to me? And, and, I, and they would say, you know, we were walking past your uncle's house, bro, and he's got beer bottles out the front of his house. I remember going to my dad and saying to him, why are the kids telling us we're not Muslim? And my dad would say to me, there's good reasons for some of your Muslim brothers and sisters to feel that way because unfortunately some of our relatives are not participating in Islam. And it is giving off the impression that we're not practicing. For me, I don't drink. As a Muslim who comes from an Alawite history, I, follow, I do my best to follow the rules of the Qur'an. And I think it's really important when we're looking at the Alawi religion, the, the, the religion of Alawites, not to mix up what Alawites believe with what Alawites don't know. You've mentioned that you, you don't drink now, but there was a point, I believe, in your younger years when you did. And you've written about an incident in high school where you went to break fast with your friends at a restaurant. But instead of doing that, they wanted to smoke some marijuana. And it marked a real turning point for you. Can you tell me what happened? So this story that you're describing is an, an autobiographical piece from a book published by Alan Unwin called Growing Up Muslim in Australia. And I wrote an essay in it called On Being Michael and Muhammad. And in this particular story, I reflect on the last couple of weeks of my time at Punchbowl Boys High School. We went to a school that was surrounded by barbed wires and cameras. So that kind of pressure, of course, is going to result in some very common antisocial behavior. And we talk so much about like, look at how Alawites behave and look at how Shiites behave and look at how Sunnis behave. In the group that I hung out with, there were Sunni, Shiite and Alawite boys. And they were, they were all across the board participating in problematic and anti-Muslim behavior. They were all drinking alcohol, you know, underage drinking. So that's not just illegal in Islam, that's against the law in Australia, you know, but it's not uncommon uh, in any community to have underage drinking. And of course, there were some of the boys who could get their hands on marijuana and who would smoke marijuana. And I do remember very vividly that in the final days of um, our time at high school, which happened to be the same time as Ramadan, the boys and I were going out after we broke our fast, getting drunk, smoking weed, you know, smoking cigarettes and basically destroying our bodies. And what happened was there was one incident where I drank so much tequila, I was 17, that I passed out and my friends carried me home and left me on the doorstep of my home. And I remember being on the bed and throwing up, you know, my dad had picked me up, put me in the bed and I was throwing up and my dad was sweeping up my vomit and he was saying in Arabic, which means shame on you. And I remember very vividly having that epiphany, the moment of realization that I had basically gotten to a very, very low point in my life. And I promised myself, when I woke up the next morning, I promised myself that I would never smoke uh, cigarettes or use any kind of drugs or drink alcohol ever again. And I never have. On RN, that's the novelist Michael Muhammad Ahmed 
talking to Mariam Shahab about what his faith means in practice. From growing up as Michael in a white working class suburb and then moving to a predominantly Muslim one and becoming Muhammad. Weighing up his Alawite heritage, embracing the Quran and rejecting his teenage excesses. And isn't that exactly what Soul Search as a show is curious about? How is our faith shaped by our experiences? And how in turn does it ground us? What's the relationship between our spirituality, our sense of ultimate things, and how we do life? I'm Meredith Lake, and you can always join me to find out by streaming Soul Search from the RN website or subscribing to the podcast via your favourite app. Well, for Michael Muhammad Ahmed, his experiences of faith in life provided raw material for his work as a writer, and in particular for his novel, The Lebs, which explores some of the identities that emerged after 9-11. So The Lebs is an autobi- a, a semi-autobiographical novel or um, a genre that we call autobiographical fiction. So it's based on my real life, but it's a fictionalised account. And so I take a lot of liberties, you know, I change names, I change places, I change incidents, I change events. So it's really important to engage in the work as a the creation of art. I don't think it should be ever seen as an account on who I am. It should be interpreted as a an interpretation and an investigation into a phenomenon called leb. And the reason why I, I consider this a phenomenon is because I think usually people consider the term leb to be shorthand for Lebanese in Australia. But the group that I was growing up around, they were from Sunni, Shi'i, Alawite backgrounds. And they were also among us people from Christian, Arab backgrounds. And there was, in addition to all of this, diversity in the countries that we came from. You know, there were people from Lebanon. Their parents were from Lebanon. There were people whose parents were from Palestine. Iraq, Afghanistan, Jordan, Syria. There were people even whose parents were from Indonesia. And yet this entire group of Muslims and Christians from various denominations from all over the world used to collectively identify as Leb. And so this was a very unique identity which had emerged primarily after the 9-11 attacks in the western suburbs of Sydney as a a way of referring to a, a new kind of other which was, I think, the embodiment of the way we imagined the Arab and the Muslim threat. And not only were, was the media really honing in on the term Lebanese and using it interchangeably with Arab, Middle Eastern and Muslim, but we also saw the community itself collectively identifying as Leb. So I, I don't think of it as, a, uh, as shorthand for Lebanese and I don't think of it as an Arab identity. I consider the idea of the Leb as a unique Australian identity um, and it's hybrid. And, and what I mean by that is that it takes a whole bunch of different identities and it blends them together. You see a type of underclass uh, Australian masculinity in the, in the Leb performance. And then you see a type of Arabness, you know, uh, language. You speak Arabic, but it's very colloquial to the western suburbs of Sydney. Most people in the Middle East don't understand what the hell we're saying to each other. Um, and, and then you also see the kind of performance of African-American ghetto gangster, you know, Hollywood narrative. Uh, all of those elements come together and they create this brand new creature, which in my book and, of course, in my, in my research, in my doctoral research, I call Leb. Mohammed, I'm wondering what you hope young Arabs or young Muslims like your son Khalil will take from reading it. Um, heaven forbid my son ever read my book because I would be very embarrassed by a lot of the things that I've written in it. I hope that he gets to grow up in a world where he firstly isn't subjected to the kind of racism, bigotry, discrimination, xenophobia, Islamophobia, and white supremacy that we were subjected to growing up in Australia as a minority. And similarly, I I just really hope that my son gets to grow up in a world where he's educated enough, and education is key to this point, where he's educated enough not to be participating in the kind of homophobic, misogynist, and violent behavior that so many of my peers um, were participating in, um, but what I really wanted to say in the Lebs, in, in, in the way I constructed the entire novel, was that the experience of being an Arab-Australian Muslim man is complex. I did not want to sugarcoat so many of the problematic aspects of our community. But if you look at the media narrative at the time in which the book is set, 
if you look at what the media was saying and the way it was pigeonholing us as sexual predators in relation to the SCAF gang rapes, potential terrorist suspects in relation to the September 11 attacks, potential gangsters in relation to the drive-by shooting in Lakemba Police, of Lakemba Police Station. If you look at these incidents and the way the media used those incidents to turn all Lebanese and Arab Australian Muslim communities into a predator, what I wanted to do in the labs was create a counter-narrative to that to say there are definitely some antisocial aspects of our community and we should try to understand these. And what I do, I think, which has been very challenging, not for Arab Australian readers, is the way the last part of the book tries to reverse that issue and tries to look at the way in which white Australia demonizes, disempowers and dehumanizes minority groups, even sometimes when, it, when it's happening with the best of intentions. Mohammed, how do you introduce Khalil to the key pillars of Islam and to Ramadan in particular? Um, well, my son is three and a half. And the way in which we have been introducing him firstly to the religion of Islam is what I would like to consider to be a very liberal and secular approach. My upbringing was one in which Islam was expected of me. You must be a Muslim. And to be more specific, you must be a Muslim Alawite. You don't have a choice in the matter. Which, of course, whether our families anywhere in the world like it or not, that's just not how it works. And so for me, I made very conscious choices growing up on the kind of person I wanted to be and the kind of beliefs that I wanted to have. What I do is I teach my son and his mother teaches our son everything that we believe and that we value. And we, give him, and we, we tell him that he's free to participate in these beliefs. And I think that he probably will participate in them until he's old enough and critically conscious enough to decide what, what, what is right for him. This is really the first year where he's been asking about Ramadan. He's been noticing that his parents are not eating from sunrise to sunset. And we tell him we're fasting. And we, we of course, bring him to the dinner table at the time that we break our fast and we do the prayers together. And so he's starting now to identify that there is this ancient ritual that we are participating in. And he's also starting to identify that he wants to be a part of it. So he's been asking me, um, can I fast? And so I, of course, am not ready and neither is he to put him through that process of fasting. But we do fasting activities, you know. So I'll say to him, tomorrow, Friday is, my, is our Father Sunday. So tomorrow on Friday, I told him we will fast for one hour. And so what we'll do is we'll wake up in the morning and we'll actively avoid having breakfast for a bit longer than usual, just so he understands what it means to fast, that it means not eating. And we also try to have conversations, and this is much more important than the act of fasting itself. We, we try to have conversations about what fasting means, the cultural, moral, ethical, and spiritual significance of fasting. We talk to him about the... The fact that there are so many people in the world who are not fortunate enough to have food and that that feeling of hunger for us, you know, living as a middle class family in the West is so much determined by when we have time to eat, not wh whether there is food to eat. We always have food and that we have a responsibility to support people who are not as privileged as us. And we have a, a responsibility to look after the blessings that we're given, you know, that we, we don't waste food. Can you hear how loud it is? What? Can you hear how loud it is? Hello. Okay, you want to try it? Mm, yeah. You can say, Salamu Alaikum. You say, Salamu Alaikum. Salamu Alaikum. What's your name? Khalil. Khalil, how old are you? Three. What's your favorite book? It's uh, fun. What's it called? Allah tells me. Allah tells me. Okay. All right. So this is one of the books we read in Ramadan. Isn't it, Dad? Yeah. Okay. Allah is my Lord and is all-knowing. In the Quran, Allah tells me to make... What? Remember that word? Uh, hmm. Shh. Uh, da, 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 da. It's Shahada. All right. What's this? A map. And what's it a map of? The mosque. Hey, what are these people doing, Khalil? Praying. Praying? 
What are the, what's this guy reading? The Quran. Good boy. In the Quran, Allah tells me to fast in the month of Ramadan. What are they? Food. When I am thirsty and hungry, I am grateful for all the blessings Allah has given me. I love this book. I know you do. <laughs> You're silly. I know it's really important for you and your wife Jane to read to Khalil every night. Reading literacy and storytelling is something that you're really passionate about um, and you've turned that passion into your organisation Sweatshop. What is Sweatshop and what is its purpose? So just to be very clear, Sweatshop is not a movement for Muslims, nor is it a movement that is built on Muslim doctrine. But it just so happens that so many of the philosophies of Sweatshop relate so heavily to my history and my tradition because different prophets throughout history are said to have had miraculous powers. And usually the powers they're given are meant to in some way represent and embody the period. So the stories of Moses, or who we call Musa, are stories about a person who lived in a time where magic and magicians were prominent and that that was one of the main ways that the faith of the time was enacted. And so when we look at the Prophet Muhammad, he, what we say is that he lived in a time where what was elevated, what was given a lot of status and cultural value was poetry, was language and was storytelling. And so Muhammad, at the age of 40, we're taught, goes to the cave of Hera to meditate. He is visited by the archangel Jibreel, the, the angel Gabriel, who tells Muhammad that, that there is a message from Allah, read. Read in the name of your Lord who created humankind from a clinging clot. Read for your Lord is most bountiful who taught humankind by means of the pen. Taught humankind that which they know not. And so Muhammad comes down from the mountain blazing with poetry, which today we call the Quran. And it's that poetry that is the miracle of Muhammad. Now to really appreciate the value of that, the illiterate man, the Prophet Muhammad, who was known to be illiterate, came down from the mountain with the most beautiful poetry anybody had ever heard. And so what we say is that Muhammad's miracle was the miracle of literacy, the miracle of reading. And so it just so happens that so much of my work, it, it's so heavily built on the ancient tradition of believing in the miraculous properties of literacy. What, what we kicked off a decade ago in the western suburbs of Sydney was a literacy movement. Which, which was about empowering culturally and linguistically diverse people in the western suburbs of Sydney through reading, writing and critical thinking. Michael Muhammad Ahmed, the director of Sweatshop, a literacy movement which is currently based in Parramatta in Sydney. Dr Ahmed has written about his upbringing and becoming Muhammad in the edited collection Growing Up Muslim in Australia, and his latest novel, The Lebs, just won a New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. Well, Ramadan continues until early June and the festival of Eid al-Fitr. But that's it for Soul Search for this week, and it's been great to have your company. And if you missed Iftar with Mushgan and Namuk, you can listen again on the net or via podcast. And next time, we'll mark another major religious festival as Buddhists around the world celebrate Vesak, the birth, death and enlightenment of the Buddha, with a cracking tale of smuggled relics, ancient scrolls and a new understanding of how Buddhism went global. You won't want to miss it. For now, thanks to producer Mariam Shahab and to sound engineer Hamish Kamaliri. I'm Meredith Lake, signing off on RN, your home of ideas. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.